From the pages of the Blizzard, the Football Quarterly, we bring you the Blizzard Podcast, a weekly look back through the Blizzard archives, where we bring you some of our favourite articles to have appeared in the magazine since we began back in 2011. We're bringing you something a little bit different this week, the latest episode of By Association, an award-winning narrative podcast about football based in Australia. For this week's episode, they took inspiration from David Corrin's article Tour of Duty, originally published in issue 3 of The Blizzard in December 2011. To find out more about that article, head back to episode 22 of this podcast, or search it out on theblizzard.co.uk. But for now, over to James Parkinson of By Association. The first few days there, we were really struggling. The food was horrendous. You couldn't drink the water. Before the games, you saw them going across the pitch with landmine detectors to see if any landmines had been put on the pitches, you know? It was one of those stories that you heard at a bar with colleagues and ex-players and you thought, is this really true? Could this really be a thing? You know, you laughed and thought, that's amazing. And you are like, surely this... This didn't actually happen. It's not the way they said it, except that it really did actually happen. It really was the way they, they told it. I'm James Parkinson from 3-0. This is By Association, a show about football and the human connection behind the beautiful game. It was November 1967 at the height of the Vietnam War when an international football tournament was held in Saigon. Eight nations would compete, New Zealand, Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore, South Korea, Hong Kong, then South Vietnam, and Australia. The Australian military came up with the idea of using football as a sort of a a vehicle to kind of connect with the local communities, which is something that they'd obviously struggled to do with, with all the language and social barriers. And they thought of this idea of sending the Australian national team to go and compete in this friendship tournament in the country, in Saigon. That's sports journalist David Corrin. This wasn't just a football tournament. There were other motives that the Australian military um, had in sending them out there. They weren't just going to play football. They were going out as kind of um, ambassadors of the Australian cause and the, the military cause that the Australian armed forces were a part of in Vietnam. We were the pawns in the game to to win over the South Vietnamese people because the, the infiltration of the Viet Cong in those days was, you know, quite substantial. So it was a it was a PR exercise, not only just a football tournament put on to, uh, you know, to play football. It was obviously a political vehicle as well. This is Ray Bartz. Yeah, hi, I'm Ray Bartz. I'm former soccer real. I played with the Australian national team from 1967 to 1974. After making his debut earlier in the year, Ray was one of the players selected for a six-week tour of Asia, of which two weeks were spent in Saigon for the Friendship Tournament, otherwise known as the South Vietnam National Day Tournament. There was a young, very young team, a squad of 17. Um, I think the average age would have been probably only 21 or 22. Um, I was only 20 years of age at the time. Once the tournament was organised and the squad selected, there was little time to think about the potential dangers for civilians heading into a war zone. I think it was about a matter of weeks. Uh, we just finished playing the season, a couple of runs and that's it. We ended up playing off to Vietnam. We didn't have too many discussions about it. 
This is Stan Ackerley. He represented Australia from 1965 to 69 after emigrating from England in 1963. These days, you would have think twice about going. When you've got a young family, well, I only had one daughter at the time, and my missus encouraged me to go. I was only a youngster, mid-twenties, but uh, being young and ambitious, all right, well, off we went to uh, Vietnam. I think 1960s, it was a little bit easier logistically and in terms of red tape to get a bunch of football teams to play in a competition in a war zone. It's very hard to imagine this thing being repeated in modern times. At no stage was I nervous about going to Vietnam or going to Asia. Probably a little bit naive that we were, you know, going to a country that was in, in the middle of the of war, but at no stage did I think that um, it was going to be dangerous. We had two weeks in camp, so we sort of had preparation to, you know, get to know each other, you know, and then before we knew it, we were on the plane. So, yeah, it all, all happened pretty quickly. So we didn't have a great deal of time to think about, you know, any danger that we were going into. Then they landed in Vietnam and were immediately confronted with the reality of what they had walked into, and that started to change their understanding of what they were being asked to do. Well, the first biggest shock we got was the uh, amount of um, people we saw, soldiers, sentry points all over the place. What a hell of a shock to everybody, you know? Once we arrived in Saigon and saw the, the, the might of the American Air Force and, and everything there was in Saigon and um, bombers here and fighter, fighter planes here, there and everything, we thought, oh, hello, um, we are in the middle of a war zone, you know, and we got through the airport and then into, into the bus to take us to the hotel and had a police escort all the way. Uh, you had a fair bit of uh, shooting going on. You know, it's taken a couple of days for us uh, to, you know, get used to it. The airport they landed was one of the busiest military airports in the world. Combat operations were being launched from that airport. The players talked about being able to hear the uh, you know artillery being fired. There was numerous like attacks that would take place, isolated attacks that would take place within Saigon. They weren't in the heart of it, but they were certainly fighting very close to where they were and, and operations being launched from where they were. They went to this briefing at the embassy on their very first day where they were told about things they had to be careful for, how to be safe, and things to look out for. And one of the things they were told was be careful of people riding on bikes because they might there might be someone who who's a threat and they could mistake you for an American or a soldier and attack you and shoot you, which you know might seem like reasonable advice, except that these players in this completely new surrounding walk out of the Australian embassy and what do they see? Just a, a city filled with people riding around on bikes. So it wasn't exactly the most reassuring news. You know, to, to be on the bus and, and whizzing around through the streets and avoiding all the motorbikes and the traffic of Saigon and, you know, the poverty that was quite obvious around and the number of people and whatever. When we got to the hotel, we had a, a lovely welcome from the Vietnamese people. The, the hotel was very basic. It was, um, 
you know, just uh, no air conditioning, of course, no TVs in those days. Um, you know, we got into a hotel room, just a, a tiled room with a bed and a, 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 you know, crisp white sheets and that, and, and that was about it, other than the lizards crawling around here, there and everywhere. So, you know, by today's standard, it was very basic, but it was just Asia in those days, you know, so it was, it was a real eye-opener to us. As the players began to settle in, the difficulties of the situation only increased, from a waterlogged training pitch to inadequate food. The food in the hotel was below average. The proprietor of their hotel had kind of taken their food coupons and only left very basic stuff for them, so they ended up being fed substitute ham. The training field was was a real quagmire at the best of times. So, you know, you, you couldn't train there all the time because of the conditions and that. It was really a cow paddock. You know, quite often we we you know we we train on the roof of the hotel, just keep the body moving a little bit. You know, we weren't allowed to train on the main stadium. There would have been a surreal sight during this short period of the Vietnam War, where footballs were just falling off the top of this building, this hotel, every every day during training. And, as Stan discovered, their hotel even had exposed wires. I'd naturally have trying out new boots. I'd been in the shower, trying to, you know, getting the new boots all broken in. Came out of the shower. I went to put the light on, and next minute I was on the other side of the room. I got an electric shock. What's more, it was later revealed that they escaped an even greater threat. A number of Viet Cong were caught trying to break into our hotel to, um, you know, set off explosives on the floor where the South Koreans were, and of course we were above them. The tournament began with a group stage. Australia were drawn into Group A alongside New Zealand, Singapore and hosts South Vietnam. Well, first of all, I remember going to the stadium with um, the police escort and so forth, and then when we got to the stadium, the army was going around the stadium with mine detectors and so forth. And, and then you think, oh, hello, <laughs> you know, um, things could be get a little bit dodgy here. But, you know, once again, once we got through, you know, into the dressing room, we got changed, we got onto the field, it was just a normal game situation and that. So Australia opened the tournament against New Zealand. It was hard to play good um, football on the ground because the ground was so heavy. Uh, so it was more of a physical encounter more so than a, a technical game, I guess you could say. Despite the challenging conditions of monsoon season and the extreme humidity, Australia defeated New Zealand 5-3 on the 5th of November. Young forward Adi Aboni leading the way with a hat-trick on debut for the Socceroos. Two days later, the Australians faced South Vietnam which was kind of an interesting match because you know it was a packed stadium, the hosts against Australia, a bit of a loaded match if you consider the political and issues around that kind of tie. Johnny Warren, the you know the famous Australian football legend, uh, an identity of Australian football, put Australia ahead in the first half after 35 minutes and then all hell broke loose. There was trouble in the stands. The riot police had to get involved. The crowd were going, uh, you know, were, were, were very, very upset. The players said the tear gas was even released and, you know, they were feeling pretty uncomfortable on the field there. They were used to the conditions. We wasn't by a long, long, long way. 
we were, you know, outsiders. I know it was a tough game and I know it was heavy going and I know we were exhausted after the game. At half-time, the South Vietnamese President Air Vice Marshal Nguyen Cao Ki went to the home side's dressing room to give them not just a kind of pick-me-up pick talk, but uh, in fact offered them money to turn the result around. But uh, it wasn't enough. Australia held on for a 1-0 win. After the game, we were still in the dressing room and they started to rock, uh, throw rocks at the dressing room and carry on. And from memory, I think we, we were kept in the dressing shed for an hour or two hours after the game till the police dispersed with the crowd and so forth. So there was that real kind of sense of this isn't just another football match. This is really kicking off in a way that these players had never experienced before. Australia's final group match was a 5-1 victory over Singapore and the easiest test they'd had so far. Abani scored his second hat-trick of the tournament to see them through to the semi-finals. A lot easier game, yeah. They weren't, you know, obviously as tough a opponent as what the previous two were and that, you know, so we were a lot more comfortable with that game. In the semi-finals, Australia met Malaysia. This was a really tight KG affair. There was a moment in the first half where security personnel had to come in and and break up a brawl between the players because of a challenge one of the Malaysians had made on a on a socceroo. So this was continuing the trend of challenging difficult circumstances the Australians found themselves in. I guess some of our guys might have been a bit more physical than you know what they were used to, which could have you know caused a reaction on their part. Nil all at the end of 90 minutes, Australia finally managed to break the deadlock, 27 minutes into extra time, thanks to Ray Bartz. I don't even remember the game, to be honest with you. Did I score, did I? It was 1-0. You scored the winner, Ray. <laughs> uh, I scored the winner, did I? <laughs> oh, I had a great game and scored a great goal. <laughs> Australia were through to the final on November 14, where they would face South Korea. Before the match, the players were offered an incentive if they were to win the tournament. Well, it came from the manager, John Barclay, actually, and once we made the final, John said, look, he said, um, I probably haven't got the authority to do this, but I'm taking it on my own bat that if you guys win the final, you can keep your tracksuits. There wasn't money incentive. They didn't say, oh, we'll give you some money or, you know, when you get home, we'll help you out with this or anything like that. It was, hey, you can keep the clothes you're wearing right now if you'd like. And you've got to bear in mind that these a lot of these players were playing for the national team unpaid. You know, you're taking annual leave to go and play for the national team. You're sacrificing to play for the national team, let alone the fact that they'd gone into a war zone and very much left their comfort zone on a mission that was in the best interests of the Australian government and the Australian military. South Korea would prove to be Australia's toughest opponent of the tournament, but by this stage, the Socceroos had gained the support of the local fans. I know that we were in awe of South Korea because they were very impressive right through the whole tournament. Lee Yung-kyun put South Korea ahead after just one minute, but Australia rallied and in the end they claimed the title with a 3-2 win and that was Australia's first major trophy that an Australian national team had won. Uh, 1967, a long time before Australia was a part of the Asian Football Confederation, Australia had claimed a trophy in Asia. So it was a pretty significant moment for not just these players, but also Australian football. Oh, it's, it is fantastic. Let's face it, if you win your first ever international tournament for you, like me, for my adopted country, 
It was fantastic. You couldn't ask for anything better. We were absolutely thrilled. And, and, you know, to be part of the first, you know, tournament that we ever won, and especially after the debacle of the previous World Cup campaign, was fantastic. You know, we, we were all so thrilled and so proud to be, um, to be part of it. There's more, more to it than just going out and playing again. It's good. It's a credit to all the lads, you know, when they got there, got their minds on the job and did a good job and uh, come away what we did on, on top, winning the tournament. A long night of celebrations followed before a final day of relaxation prior to heading home. The players went back to the hotel and and they stayed up drinking and a lot of the players stayed up throughout the night. And then the next day before they flew home, they went to the airport and were picked up by a caribou, which was an Australian military transport plane at the time. We had a day spare before we flew out of um, Saigon and the uh, Australian Army asked us if we would go down to Vung Tau and just spend time with the troops down there where the main troop base was for the Australian boys so um we said yeah we're only too happy to so we went out the next day to the airport and we sort of had a few beers the night before the celebrate and we weren't feeling too good and the pilot of the plane knew that they were really hungover a lot of the players so he opened the back of the plane the bay door so they could see the beach beneath them as they came into land and then he he kind of flew in as low as he possibly could with the you know the water and the beachfront just beneath them to get the reception that we got from the, the troops down there and uh, we mingled with them all day and, um, and that was really satisfying to be able to do that and contribute. It's a nice image of these these young men who had just won the first trophy in Australian football history sitting by the beach with a bunch of Australian soldiers having a barbecue. Seems like a quintessentially Australian way of going about things. The magnitude of Australia's performance in the Friendship Tournament cannot be understated. Not only did they perform on the pitch, but they did it in remarkable circumstances, and all for the honour of representing their country. They didn't go to Vietnam to serve, right? They weren't they weren't in the on the front lines, they weren't fighting and and, and a great many Australians went over there to put themselves in even in much more horrifying circumstances and, and suffered even greater tolls. But these players did go to a place that, you know, civilians weren't meant to be going. This wasn't a place where where footballers should be playing football. We were all part-time players. We all held down full-time jobs and, you know, the, our club commitments were three or four nights a week training. To play for your country, you have to sacrifice a lot. So we sacrificed a lot, you know. A lot of kids ask me these days, oh, you're playing for Australia, you must have got a lot of money. No, 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 no. You don't. You play for Australia to do one thing, to represent your country. This was about representing the national team. It was about their love of the game, their love of playing at the highest level they possibly could. That's why they went over there, because they were asked to. They went over there because that's what they were requested to do, because they played for their national team, and that was a great honour. When you're asked, you go. You know, For them, it was a special opportunity, and they were proud and happy to go and experience it. And in doing so, they created a legacy for Australian football. The spirit of this team would live on through to 1974 and beyond. The morale in the team was absolutely brilliant. We were all basically one big family. All the lads stuck together off the pitch. That was the biggest thing, togetherness off the pitch. 
because of the team spirit, we, we saw always sort of mix well. We had a lot of fun, we had a lot of laughs and a lot of practical jokes and everything. So, you know, they talk about pioneers and so forth. I, I think this team set the standard and, and set the team spirit for future Australian teams. This was before the, the Socceroos were even called the Socceroos, you know. So um, this was uh, such a, a bonding experience, if you know what I mean, that I think remained with the Australian team for many years after that. The nucleus of these players formed the group that would go on to help Australia qualify for its first ever World Cup in 1974. Not only was it some of the same players, this trip in particular and a couple others around the time helped form the sort of the kind of the team bonding and the, the mateship um, and identity of the Socceroos and the national team that has very much carried on to this day. So this tournament really helped forge their like identity as a national team, their willingness to fight and work together and be together and, and also be friends because they, they went through so much. You still see it to this day that when the Socceroos get together for a major event and a major tournament, there is like a friendship and a bond amongst the playing group that this is something that really matters. And the foundations for that were laid quite remarkably during the Vietnam War, during this tournament. By Association is produced by me, James Parkinson. Many thanks to David Corrin, Stan Ackley and Ray Bartz. And special thanks to Bregan Renshaw for production help on this episode. This story was inspired by David Corrin's brilliant article by the same name in The Blizzard. It's beautifully written, so go and have a read. You'll find a direct link in the show notes and on our website. Music featured in this story comes from Lee Rosefear, the Free Harmonic Orchestra, Chris Zabriskie, Josh Woodward, and Little Glass Men under Creative Commons. So I make this show all on my own in my bedroom, and I put a ton of hours into each episode. I don't have sponsors, and I don't have a budget. It's a passion project, at least for now, but I do believe it can be so much more, and how far it can go is really up to you. If you enjoy By Association, tell your family and friends, tell the press, share it on social media, leave a review. It all helps to grow the podcast. And if you'd like to go one step further, you can become a supporter on Patreon. There's a great community building around the show, and I'd love you to join in. Check it out, patreon.com slash association. You can stay up to date on the show by following along on Twitter and Instagram at FC, and sign up to receive the program, the official Buy Association newsletter, which I send out once a month. You'll find that and more on the website, buyassociation.audio. Thank you for listening and thanks to our parent site, 3nilfc.com, where we always love the game. Do you know that even before our time, there was an Australian team went to South Africa in 1950 and they never even had a coach. You know, they had a manager and a captain and the captain had the coach and picked the team with the manager. You know, so things like that 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 happened, um, you know, well before my time, but 
but it's all in the progression of the game. If that tour hadn't have taken place in 1950 and the tour in 1967, who knows where we would be? So it's not only from 1967 and 1974 onwards, it's what happened before that as well, and it goes back a long way. I hope that it's a story that continues to be retold and remembered because I think this is just one of the many things. It's certainly one of the most remarkable stories I can think of in Australian football history, but it's one of the many cases of players, both on the men's and women's side of the game in the 60s, 70s and 80s, sacrificing and really committing to their national team because of how much it meant to them. And I hope that people will retell the story and remember it and remember what these guys committed because they laid the foundation of why the Australian national football team is so important, why the Socceroos matter by these sort of sacrifices at a time when most of the world, most of the country wasn't looking at them and wasn't paying attention. They were representing the national team and helping to build a legacy that now has the Socceroos as such an appointment viewing. Every four years, Australia going to the World Cup is such an important thing. They laid the foundations for that release that would come when they were qualified in 2005 for the World Cup for the first time in 32 years and everything that's come since then. These guys helped lay that, lay that foundation. This episode was produced by James Parkinson for By Association, an Australian-based award-winning narrative podcast about football. For a brand new audio documentary each month, subscribe to By Association on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your audio output. To find out more about the show, visit their website, byassociation.audio.